From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. In two-thirds of stroke cases, someone other than the patient makes a decision to seek treatment. Do you know the warning signs of stroke or when you should call 911? May is American Stroke Month, a campaign to help us become aware of signs of stroke in others and to know important steps we can take to prevent a stroke from happening in the first place. On today's program, we'll discuss stroke awareness and prevention with a Mayo Clinic expert. Also on the program, Dr. Tom Shives will join me as co-host. We'll learn how pain rehabilitation centers can help those struggling with chronic pain. And we'll learn about treatment and therapy that's necessary after an amputation. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. According to the American Stroke Association, stroke is the nation's number five killer and a leading cause of serious long-term disability. On average, someone in the U.S. has a stroke every 40 seconds, and every four minutes, somebody dies from one. A stroke occurs when the blood supply to part of your brain is interrupted or reduced, depriving brain tissue of oxygen and nutrients. Within minutes, brain cells begin to die, and prompt treatment is crucial to minimize brain damage and potential complications. May is American Stroke Month, and here to discuss is Mayo Clinic neurologist and stroke expert, Dr. Robert Brown, Jr. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Brown. It's great to see you again. Well, thank you for inviting me back. Great to be here. I think when I'm saying May is American Stroke Month, I don't even know how many times you have been here to talk about stroke, but yet it is still so critically important that it gets its own month. Yes. Well, I think I've been here about 20 times now, actually, <laughs> and the field of stroke has changed so much over those years, but it's great to be here and raise awareness regarding stroke. Well, we'll get to what has changed in a moment, but first explain to us uh, the two different types of strokes mm-hmm. and how are they different from each other? Well, the most common type of stroke is an ischemic stroke in which there's a lack of blood supply to the brain due to a blockage in the arteries. The arteries carry the oxygen, carrying blood cells up to the brain tissue. But when a blockage occurs, an ischemic stroke can occur. And that's about 85% of strokes. The other strokes are hemorrhagic strokes or bleeding strokes in which there's a rupture of an artery or an aneurysm or some other abnormality in the brain leading to blood to spill into the brain tissue, and that's a hemorrhagic stroke. So, Dr. Brown, you described the two types of strokes. Are there, is the causation similar between the two? It's a great question. Some of the risk factors, that is, factors that increase the risk of an ischemic stroke or a hemorrhagic stroke, some of those are the same. However, the overall causes of each type of stroke differs. So in terms of ischemic stroke, what are the risk factors for that? Mm -hmm. Well, for ischemic stroke, the risk factors, and again, this ties into some strokes being preventable, the risk factors include high blood pressure, cigarette smoking, diabetes, and elevated cholesterol. So that sounds like the same risk factors for a heart attack. Mm -hmm. Very similar. Since a heart attack is an abnormality in an artery of the heart muscle, some of the risk factors are, in fact, the same. Okay. And then you talked about an ischemic stroke. What about a hemorrhagic stroke when you bleed into your brain? What are the risk factors for Mm -hmm. that? Well, it depends on the cause, but for hemorrhagic stroke, high blood pressure Mm -hmm. is a key risk factor. There are other causes, though, of hemorrhagic stroke that don't have some of those same risk factors. A brain aneurysm, which is a little 
bubble or balloon-like outpouching off of an artery, that has risk factors which include high blood pressure and cigarette smoking. So you can sense there's a similar theme here with all of the types of stroke. I should mention as well, when it comes to an ischemic stroke, a lack of a blood supply stroke, there are many different potential causes. For example, some heart conditions like an irregular heartbeat called atrial fibrillation, that can put a person at risk of a stroke. And so it's more complex than just the risk factors that I just mentioned, and it leads into there being so many different potential options for stroke prevention. So let's talk about spells, TIAs, is what uh, I have learned from over the years from you. But my relatives all called them spells. Mm-hmm. And what is that? Mm-hmm. Well, a transient ischemic attack is a temporary lack of blood flow to the brain leading to temporary symptoms. And those symptoms, we should step back and talk about those a bit. The symptoms that lead to a diagnosis of TIA or stroke include the sudden onset of difficulty doing something, sudden weakness in the face, arm, or leg, sudden difficulty speaking, Sudden difficulty seeing, sudden difficulty walking, meaning significant gait unsteadiness, sudden numbness in the face, arm, or leg, or sudden severe headache unlike anything a person has had before. These are all potential symptoms of stroke. So when it comes to TIA, Tracy, a TIA are transient symptoms. They come on oftentimes quite abruptly, and then they last several minutes to hours, and then they go away. But the importance is even though they're transient, those symptoms should not be ignored because a TIA is a significant predictor of a stroke that's going to occur in the hours or days or weeks ahead. Before you came onto the show, Tracy and I were talking about this sudden onset of the worst headache possible. Tracy, tell us about that. Oh, yeah. Well, Dr. Brown knows this, but the listener may never have heard it. One of the pastimes that you were on a few years ago a month or so after you were on, someone called up and said the words, the worst headache that you've ever had, were ringing in his ears when the next day after listening to our program, he had the worst headache he'd ever had. He went to the emergency room and indeed was having a stroke. Wow. So hearing things like that, and, and as we were mentioning, Dr. Kakar, you knew someone who was having difficulty speaking, mm-hmm. and it turned out that was a TIA that was happening. Mm-hmm. Do you continue to have these TIAs and then eventually you do have a stroke? Is that what happens? That that can happen. And certainly, as I mentioned a moment ago, a TIA means that a, there's a relatively high risk of stroke in the weeks uh, and months ahead. Some TIAs will occur once and never occur again. However, because it is a risk factor for your future stroke, What we encourage our patients to do is if they have such a symptom, even if it's transient, to seek emergency medical care because there may well be something that could be done to prevent that stroke. And certainly the best treatment for stroke is to prevent a stroke. And as we've said many times when you've been on, unlike my relatives who would say it was just a spell, I'm fine now, and then just continue on with life. But now we know better. That that's what they should have been doing was going in and telling their physician about it. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. And human nature makes it yeah, such that it's now. easy to mm-hmm. ignore something that's transient. Mm-hmm. But please don't do that. 
So, Dr. Brown, we talked about the transient ischemic attack. Are there any other warning signs that uh, may be uh, leading you down to that pathway of developing a stroke? Mm -hmm. In terms of warning signs, a TIA is really the key factor. Now, that said, we will sometimes detect a narrowing in an artery in the neck. For example, the carotid arteries are the arteries in the neck that supply the eye and supply a a good part of the brain in terms of its uh, blood supply. Now, sometimes there will be an, a narrowing that will develop in that artery due to atherosclerosis or plaque. And we'll sometimes treat that narrowing in the artery before any stroke-related symptoms have occurred. And likewise, the irregular heartbeat that I mentioned, atrial fibrillation, will use certain blood-thinning medicines to try to prevent a stroke in that setting as well. What about younger people that have strokes? You hear the strange... A 35-year-old had a stroke. Is that the same thing that's happening with someone who's advanced in years? That's a great question, and we do sometimes see strokes occur in young people. And of note, atherosclerosis or plaque can occur even in people in their 30s and 40s, and these tend to be people who are smokers, sometimes are diabetic, maybe they've had an elevated cholesterol that they're not aware of, and so family history can can play a role as well. But yeah, young people can sometimes develop a stroke. There are other causes of stroke, though, that differ in younger people. As an example, Tracy, what is called a dissection, which is a tear in the artery supplying the brain tissue, that can sometimes occur in younger people and is a little bit less common in older people. We talked to Sarah about some of the risk factors. How does stress play a role? Yeah, great, great question. Stress is a relation to high blood pressure, as an example, to sleep that is not as good as it should be. And there are some studies that suggest that prominent stress in one's life can be a risk factor for heart attack and stroke, even apart from high blood pressure. But oftentimes there's a connection to some other risk factors for stroke. We've been talking about Stroke Awareness Month with neurologist Dr. Robert Brown. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to find out how stroke can be treated and what's new in the world of stroke. And myth or matter of fact, recovery from a stroke only happens during the first few months after a stroke. Is that a myth or a fact? We'll find out. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. We're talking about stroke with Mayo Clinic expert, Dr. Robert Brown. And so, Dr. Brown, myth or matter of fact, recovery from a stroke happens in the first few months after a stroke, and then not so much after that. Is that a myth or a fact? Well, it is a myth. And while a great deal of improvement will occur in those first several months after a stroke, many patients will describe ongoing improvement long after those first few months Hmm. have passed, particularly those that are continuing with some therapy, speech therapy, physical therapy, occupational therapy. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit more about that. How is a stroke treated Mm -hmm. first when you're having the stroke? Mm -hmm. Well, when it comes to ischemic strokes, that is that lack of blood supply stroke to the brain, our goal is to try to get the blood flowing to that brain tissue that is starved in that oxygen-carrying blood cells. And our current treatments uh, have really changed quite a bit from what they used to be. We do use clot busters, uh, TPA is the most common one, and we use that within at least three hours, up to even four and a half hours after onset of symptoms. So again, this is a clot buster to try to dissolve the clot. Now, the major advance in our field, though, is moving beyond 
clot busters delivered intravenously, and we're now using what are called catheter-based or endovascular treatments. And what is that? Well, little plastic catheter, little plastic tube can be placed in the groin artery and advanced from that groin artery all the way up into the arteries of the brain, Mm. directly to the site of the clot. And via that catheter, there's a, a small device, if you will, at the tip of that catheter that can extract or remove that clot from the artery. Now, in recent years, we've been using those endovascular or catheter-based treatments up to six hours after onset of symptoms, but there is more. Over the last few months, there have been two truly landmark clinical studies that have been reported in the literature that suggest that selected patients can be treated up to 24 hours after onset of symptoms, and these selected patients are identified using specific types of CAT scan and MRI scan. And what those scans tell us are though, is which of the patients have an area of the brain tissue that's lacking in blood supply, but that brain tissue has not been lost. That brain tissue has not died, if you will. How in the world... Does that happen? How does one person have a stroke and the brain tissue is lost and the other isn't and it's not damaged beyond repair? Great question, Tracy. And part of it is related to what we call collateral blood flow. That is the brain in a very amazing way tries to take over the blood flow to the area of the brain that has lost the blood flow at the time of the stroke. And so it varies tremendously from person to person. But clearly, we now realize there are some people that have a area of brain tissue that's lacking in blood flow, but has not been lost. And if we can treat them after appropriate identification and start that blood flowing up to that brain tissue again, we can now get better outcomes in those people. Again, even in some people, up to 24 hours after onset that's, of symptoms. That's fascinating. That's amazing. So this uh, new treatment, is that available at all uh, hospitals, or do you have to be in a, a stroke center for that? Yeah, that treatment that I've mentioned, uh, the endovascular treatment, is only available in selected stroke centers. And I should also add, though, that in attempt to identify those patients who should be emergently transported mm. to a stroke center, mm-hmm. there are now stroke networks that have developed around the country, and some of those, including Mayo Clinic, are using telestroke, that is an audio-video connection to a small rural hospital, and identify those patients that may benefit from emergency transfer to a major medical center where those endovascular or catheter-based treatments are available. And again, that is determined by a CAT scan? Well, the initial CAT scan and how that patient presents can tell us if they're a candidate for the clot buster. Now, going the next step, though, and identifying who is a candidate for that catheter-based treatment, that requires them to be transferred to that stroke center where a higher level of imaging CAT mm-hmm. scan or MRI scan, as well as that catheter-based treatment is available. Okay. And so they do that catheter treatment during a CAT scan, or how can they find mm-hmm. the, the stroke part in the brain? Well, it's done after the CAT scan. That is, uh. the CAT scan helps to identify who might be a candidate, and then the catheter-based treatment is done 
as part of what we call an angiogram. An angiogram is a study that outlines the arteries in detail, and one then can quickly identify if there's an artery that's blocked, and then a catheter-based treatment might be able to open up that artery. So, Dr. Brown, we've talked about the acute treatment. What happens after the acute treatment? Tell us about the rehabilitation that patients mm-hmm. go through. Thank you. Well, after that acute phase, there are several key questions that then arise. Number one, why did that stroke occur? And there are several tests that might be done, including assessment of the arteries to see if there's a blockage of a certain type, mm-hmm. assessment of the heart, a number of blood tests. And so the point is identifying the specific cause for the stroke so that a strategy can be put into place to prevent them from ever having another. And that might include a surgical treatment, maybe a balloon therapy, uh, selected blood pressure medicines, cholesterol-lowering medicines, blood thinners, whole variety of things that we can use. But at the same time, we're identifying the cause of the stroke mm-hmm. to implement physical rehab techniques. Physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy – are all very effective in helping that patient to recover to the greatest possible extent and to achieve the highest level of independence. What can people do to prevent stroke and lower their risk? Mm -hmm. Know your blood pressure level, and if it's elevated, work with your doctor to uh, identify the best medicine to reduce it. If you're a cigarette smoker, do anything possible. Work with your doctor to stop smoking. If you have diabetes, Treat it so that your blood sugar is in range. And if your cholesterol is elevated, using dietary therapy and medicines, reduce that cholesterol level. And I almost forgot, Dr. Kakar, what does FAST mean? We have to remember FAST. Mm -hmm. Well, FAST is the acronym. F is for face. If you see somebody who might be having stroke-related symptoms, ask them to smile. And if they have facial droop, that's a potential symptom. A is for arm weakness. Have them raise their arms, and if one drifts or drops, that indicates arm weakness. S is for speech. Listen to their speech, and if it's slurred, that can be a symptom. And T is for time. Every minute counts when it comes to stroke. And if you're experiencing the worst headache you've ever felt, take Um, the Mayo Clinic radio advice and go to the emergency room. Absolutely. Exactly right. (laughs) May is Stroke Awareness Month, and we've been talking with neurologist and stroke expert, Dr. Robert Brown, Jr. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Brown. Thanks again for having me here. Great to be here with you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, Dr. Shives will join me as co-host, and we'll learn about Mayo Clinic's Pain Rehabilitation Center. And later on the show, helping patients recover after an amputation. Do you want to hear and see more Mayo Clinic Radio? Subscribe to the Mayo Clinic Radio podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider, or check out the more than 200 Mayo Clinic Radio segments on video, now available on YouTube. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams from the Mayo Clinic News Network. Skin cancer is the most common form of cancer, but many people ignore their risks. Dr. Kathy Newman, a Mayo Clinic dermatologist, offers a simple way to evaluate marks on your skin to see if they might be skin cancer. She says there are basal cell cancers, there are squamous cell cancers, and melanoma. Melanoma is the most dangerous type of skin cancer. Dr. Newman says more than one million Americans have melanoma right now or a history of it. 
Now, melanoma is more common in the sun-exposed areas, but it can be other places, too. So one of the big things Dr. Newman and her colleagues push in dermatology is to try to get people to look at all of their skin, not just the sun-exposed areas, and check regularly, because the earlier you catch a melanoma, the easier it is to treat. Dr. Newman says you should remember the ABCDEs of melanoma when you're checking. A is for asymmetry, when one half is unlike the other half. B is for border irregularity. That's if a mole starts developing a tail or irregular borders. C is for color. If a mole changes color, doesn't match the color of other moles, or varies color from one area to another. D is for diameter, if a mole starts getting bigger. And E is for evolving. Keep checking for any changes in a mole. But just don't check for it. Protect against it. She says people should use sun protection, and that includes shade, hats, and sunscreen. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Like any long-term health problem, chronic pain can limit your quality of life and lead to additional serious health problems. Treating chronic pain can be tricky. What works for one person may not work for another, and the long-term use of pain medication presents its own set of problems. Mayo Clinic's Pain Rehabilitation Center helps people with chronic pain to return to a more active lifestyle. Pain rehab incorporates behavioral, physical, and occupational therapy to help restore physical activities and improve quality of life for those suffering from chronic pain. And here to discuss is Mayo Clinic psychologist, Dr. Jeannie Sperry. Welcome to the program, Dr. Sperry. Thank you. Dr. Sperry, nice to have you with us. Thank you. So we all know this is a a common problem, but how common is it really? So studies show that about a third of the United States population suffers from chronic or recurring pain. So it's a a large amount of the population. It's more prevalent in certain populations, for example, returning veterans. Wait wait a minute. That's like 100 million people, or are we just talking about the adult population? We're talking about 100 million people report having pain on a recurrent or chronic basis. And how do you – what's the difference? How do you define it, chronic pain versus acute? What does chronic mean? So chronic pain typically is looked at for more than three to six months after the typical healing period from an injury or surgery, for example, would occur. And it's typically looked at, it has an increasingly negative impact on people's lives over time. So um, it starts to affect their their work, their relationships, um, their social functioning, and increasing amounts of disability and really distress over time. Is there a common chronic pain patient? Every patient is different, and we all experience pain differently. So it's very common. Back and neck pain is very common. Musculoskeletal pain is, is common. But it, but we see patients with post-treatment um, pain for, like, chemotherapy or radiation pain. We see patients after sports injuries, work injuries. So um, pain is experienced very differently. Headache is very common also. A lot of what we see in the, the center where I work is what we call generalized pain or chronic widespread pain. So again, pain that is spread beyond the original injury or condition to really having a wild impact on both the body and, and people's lives. Well, that's got to be difficult. I've got pain everywhere. You know, where do you start? So you start in it with a comprehensive approach. What we know is that, again, pain is very complex. It's multi-determined and so a multi-dimensional, multi, multimodal um, approach is used with these kinds of patients. So we um, 
we address kind of all the factors related to to pain. So we work on physical conditioning. We work on um, how people perform daily activities with occupational therapy. We do medication management, make changes in medications. And we also look at how people think and behave in pain and work on changing those aspects of their life as well. How do you do that, the behavioral part? So what we see is that, again, pain starts taking over people's lives over time. They start thinking about pain and ruminating about pain and worrying about the future. Um, they behave in ways that inadvertently make things worse by avoiding activity or avoiding relationships that could be helpful. Um, so we really promote a very active rehabilitation approach. So we actually have classes where we help people um, address how they think about their pain and various chronic symptoms and change those to be actually more helpful and to motivate, motivate them to make other behavioral changes. We, inc- we gradually increase activity. Often people become fearful of, of doing different activities because they're afraid their pain will get worse. And so we have a very gradual, systematic approach to increasing activity so they become less painful, less fearful of pain, and be better able to re-engage in, in activities that they value in life. When we got started, you mentioned offhandedly that veterans um, experience chronic pain. Well, with modern technology, our veterans are surviving accidents and injuries that in previous years they wouldn't have survived. But there are certainly some after effects of that. So we know that um, people are surviving after lost limbs or um, serious um, head injuries. Um, and there are also, again, the, the, the psychological components of being in combat and seeing very difficult things, and all those interplay, they, they interact to create people who, to create conditions in people that um, really promote pain and disability and fearfulness of activity. And so there's a, there's a high prevalence, and these are, again, complicated individuals often coming back and don't have the same social structure, they have, their jobs aren't there anymore, et cetera. So there, um, there are a lot of aspects to address in their lives, and a, a one one type of treatment approach is typically insufficient. Is this an inpatient program, and what is the average length of stay? So most pa- most programs like ours are three to four weeks, and they are um, hospital-based. So we're, so we're based in a hospital, but it's an outpatient program. So people mm-hmm. typically come, and they, in our programs, come and stay for three weeks in Rochester, and they, they stay in hotels locally. Um, whether in treatment. And how do you screen the patients? How do you know uh, which patients, uh, are they all referred to you, and how do you know which ones are candidates? So we have an evaluation process, and we um, look at their medical records to determine if, if medical workups are complete. Um, so we know that they need to be able to participate in, a, in a, some aerobic activity every day, although we have patients who come to us even in wheelchairs, and some are very deconditioned, some are missing limbs. But be able to participate in physical activity every day, um, pain for more than three months that is having a significant impact on their life and their, their quality of life and their functioning, um, and that are, that are willing to um, address medications. We taper um, opioids and some other medications that sometimes have been used chronically that are, that are actually recommended for acute. So we manage that they'd be willing to taper off those medications, willing to participate in a three-week program that really is based on improving their quality of life, not necessarily making all their pain go away. How has the work that you're doing changed with opioid, the crisis, or the situation of having more opioids present for patients to use? 
So I've been doing this kind of work in rehabilitation for, for quite some time, and previously we didn't see this many people who were taking opioids. Um, it's always been part of programs like this to do medication management. Um, certainly in the past 10 years, the number of patients coming on on a lot of medications, sometimes for many years, even decades, um, and at high doses, has certainly increased, which increases the medical complexity. Sometimes they have other complicating medical conditions, and so working on their medications can be kind of tricky. That's why we're hospital-based and have such a um, significant number of team members. And the use of opioids, can't that increase the amount of pain that a patient is feeling? Yes. So what we find is that opioids really were designed for treating acute pain and that over time there are changes in the brain that occur that actually make people more sensitive to pain with the use of pain medications. So kind of paradoxically, what we find is that people are fearful of coming off medications, but when they are off those medications, they actually start feeling better often pretty quickly. Do you have a typical patient, a male, female, young, old? Is there a typical patient? I don't know that there is. We we have a pediatric pain program here at Mayo as well as an adult program. So we see patients from the age of 13 to well into their 80s, and pain is more prevalent in, in women. But we have both males and females, um, and they, they really, people are different. Their experience is different. It's interesting, though, that when they're in a group of people who are all dealing with pain, they really reinforce um, improvements in each other, that pain can be so isolating. And when people are together working on a common goal of getting their lives back, um, it's very empowering for people. Final question. Uh, how successful is the program, and how do you know if you've been successful in helping someone? So we evaluate our patients very carefully before they come in. We perform both physical and um, and self-report measures when they enter the program, when they leave three weeks later, and then again six months after that. And we find um, 80% of our patients report very significant benefits. Most patients, even six months after the program, are still not taking pain medications. Their their physical functioning has improved, and they report much better mood, much better um, quality of life. They perceive their health is better. Um, they have less pain and much less impact of pain on their lives. All right. Well, that's pretty impressive. We've been talking about pain rehabilitation uh, clinics with Mayo Clinic psychologist, Dr. Jeannie Sperry. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll learn about amputee rehabilitation from a Mayo Clinic expert. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, it is finally time to talk about amputations. Oh, boy. Yep. And believe it or not, there are a lot of people who have had a part of a limb or an extremity removed. Almost 2 million Americans are living with amputations. Of course, amputation is the surgical removal of all or part of a limb or extremity. An arm, a leg, a foot, a hand, a toe, even a finger. The Amputee Coalition of America estimates that there are about 185,000 new lower extremity or leg amputations every year in the United States. About one million worldwide. That's one every 30 seconds. Man, there are multiple reasons that an amputation may be necessary. First, poor circulation from peripheral artery disease, or PAD, and the majority of those patients have diabetes. Less common reasons for an amputation include severe injury or accident, or occasionally for cancer. No matter what the cause, amputees face not only physical challenges, but emotional and social ones as well. 
Amputee rehabilitation is a big part of the whole process. And here to discuss is Dr. Karen Andrews. Dr. Andrews is a member of the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation and is the director of the Wound Healing Clinic and chair of Amputee Rehabilitation Services at Mayo Clinic. Well, that was such a long introduction. We hardly <laughs> have time, time to ask any questions. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Dr. Dr. Andrews. <laughs> yeah, great to finally have you on the program. Yeah, great to be here. So tell us uh, what it means. What's your job involved as a uh, rehabilitation specialist at I, Mayo Clinic? I'm blessed that uh, our department is fairly big, so I can focus on the care of people with wounds and amputation through the continuum of their care. And you're also uh, involved in the wound clinic, director of the wound, ulcer and wound clinic. So what happens there? The wound clinic is part of the vascular center, and wounds are a manifestation of an underlying disease process. So what we see is vascular wounds. Um, so blood vessel, related to poor blood flow. Uh, blood circulation, yep, exactly. It could be also uh, wounds related to vein disease, any vascular disease. Okay. And and you treat these in, you've got multiple ways you can treat these to per, try to prevent somebody from having to have an amputation? So that's why it's beneficial to be in the vascular center. We have interventional radiology, we have vascular surgery, and for treating their wounds, we have multiple wound products and modalities that we can use. The two of you must have worked together a lot over the years. And how is it that what you spend your whole career doing amputations, we don't talk about more often on this program. What about my whole career? <laughs> well, you know, the interesting That's part of this. That's what I this, tell my kids. Yeah, I'm sure you do, but you don't have to tell them that. But, you know, we used to do amputations for kids who had bone cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, we rarely do that anymore because now we have chemotherapy and better ways to take just take the tumor out and reconstruct the extremity, mm-hmm. the arm or the leg. But there's a lot of peripheral arterial disease, particularly with the uh, epidemic of obesity and diabetes, uh, and people with diabetes get bad blood vessel disease. And that's why I didn't, I didn't try to grow this practice. No, it, it, I kind of forced him to. I said, you did amputations. Could you see this person that needs an amputation? No, I'm an oncologist. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't do that stuff. <laughs> so the most common reason for amputation, you do agree with what he's saying? is Exactly. It a, so uh, there are multiple different reasons. Um, but now it's it's typically the complications of diabetes, which can be neuropathy and uh, peripheral arterial disease. So neuropathy, explain that for our listeners. So with neuropathy, um, people with diabetes have decreased protective sensation, and so they can literally walk a hole in their foot without realizing it. Yeah, bad problem. So it's a double-edged. Uh, exactly. So they've got poor blood flow, and they have loss of sensation. And those two things together can easily create a sore on the foot, and exactly. sometimes you can't heal it in the wound care center. Exactly. So then uh, we, you and I have decided we're a team. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> decided that someone needs an amputation. Um, tell our listeners how you and, and when you become involved. So... Sometimes it's a patient that I've seen in the wound center that unfortunately we have not been able to heal, but a lot of times it's somebody that the orthopedic surgeons may ask us to see um, before amputation. And what I do is I first talk to the patient about what to expect following amputation. It's a big deal when you're told you need an amputation. And so to go over and sort of reassure them that people can do well following amputation. And then I also talk to them about what their level of function is uh, to try to get a feel for what level of amputation would be best for them and how they'll be able to function after the amputation surgery. And then once we get the 
wound healed, no matter what the level of amputation. But most of these patients have amputations uh, below the knee or sometimes even above the knee. Then they go to, to amputee clinic. Yes. Uh, they're all healed up. They're ready to get a prosthesis. Tell us how that works. So it usually takes about six weeks for the incision line to heal. And then once it's healed... Um, uh, it depends on the level, but uh, for the below-the-knee level uh, amputees, it usually takes a week to make the artificial leg and uh, a week to train them to use the artificial leg. So in two months, we expect people to be up walking safely at household distances. I'm surprised it only takes a week to learn how to use it. Yeah. Um, so uh, that's learning how to walk safely at household distances. It's sort of like learning how to ride a bike. Um, you'd be... Uh, you know basic skills of riding a bike, but getting your hands off the handlebars and optimal function is more like six months. And the prosthetics are so much better than they used to be. I mean, there are a lot of people uh, in this country, in this town, who are walking around with a, a prosthesis following a baloney amputation, and you really can't tell it. Absolutely. Um, you would have no idea. Uh, uh, and so we show people videos or allow people to talk with peer visitors so they can get a feel for what to expect following amputation. The emotional piece of that, you kind of touched on that, but what do people commonly go through emotionally when they, when they have a prosthetic? So it depends of uh, person to person. We have a lot of resources available to us. Um, uh, adjusting to an amputation is like uh, adjusting to loss of a, a family member. You go through a grieving process. So psychology is available if needed. Um, the Amputee Coalition America that Tom mentioned earlier is a great advocacy group for people with amputations. And we also try to set up people with peer visitors if they think that that would be beneficial. So tell us about what's the most rewarding part of your, your job day in, day out. So people do so well at the end of this process, and so it's just so rewarding to see in two months how well people can do when they may have been suffering with whatever disease process may lead to the amputation for years. You know, I would say that some of the most grateful patients that I have and that I share with Dr. Andrews are not the patients that you've cured of cancer, but the patients who have had an amputation because they've struggled with a sore and pain and malodorous wounds for so long, you remove their limb, they get a prosthesis, they're up walking. Those are some of the most exactly. critical patients we have. Exactly. Dr. Karen Andrews, Rehabilitation Specialist at the Mayo Clinic, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. And that's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Have a question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at newsnetwork.mayo.edu. We'll be answering your questions in upcoming programs. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.